Hello and welcome back to Downton Abbey, the official podcast with me, Anita Rani. I'll be your guide over the next six episodes as we get ready for the return of Downton in the upcoming cinematic release, Downton Abbey, A New Era. I hope you're all as excited as I am. Thank you to the wonderful Jacqueline Coley for her deep dive that set us up perfectly to enter this new era of Downton by recapping on all the critical twists and turns and plot lines of our beloved characters. If you haven't heard these episodes yet, then do go to earlier releases of this podcast to catch up. Now, over the next six weeks, I'll be speaking to the cast, creators and behind-the-scenes talent that have made this next film come to life one suitor after another like no no it's like tinder of the time i know it really was swipe 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 (laughs) it was teeming with thousands of crew and tents i did a film with julian actually years ago but everyone else in that film got parts in downton except me i don't know (laughs) in this episode we'll be heading straight into the new era and who better to give us a hint of what to expect other than the one and only creator and writer Julian Fellows. The New Era. It's set in 1928. And I felt that 1928 was a time when the modern world was really beginning to wake up. After the war, it took a a while for everything to kind of settle down. And there was that frantic kind of release at the end of the war of flappers and all that stuff. But now we're getting into the time of air travel is is becoming much more normal than it had been before and industries are getting going. Entertainment is changing. And, you know, by 1928, films were completely established as a worldwide agent of entertainment. I mean, that affects our characters but I think it's legitimate to see it uh, as going into the 30s. And the 30s really are the modern world. So there you have it. Air travel, the movie industry, the eve of the 30s. Downton is entering the modern world and I want to go with it. So how will these events of 1928 shape our characters' futures? The trailer gave us a glimpse of a sun-soaked location in France, a marriage and a mystery to unravel. Well, I wanted to find out more, so I went straight to the custodian of Downton Abbey, Lord Grantham himself, played by Hugh Bonneville, to find out what's in store for the inhabitants of our favourite stately home. The new era... I think it's a bit of a cheeky title, frankly. It sounds a bit like Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, and hilariously, when Elizabeth McGovern pronounces it, of course, she says a new era. <laughs> and I keep saying, that's not, well, it sounds wrong. Um, so Downton Abbey, A New Hope, is, um, is uh, <laughs> I think there are, there are two key things that really drive the film. The notion of making movies comes to Downton Abbey. So there's lots of, obviously, in-jokes about... Uh, you know, the nature of movie making. Um, and actors. And actors. And actors <laughs> exactly. Lord Grantham has great fun dissing actors, as does Mr. Carson. So that's really one strand of the story. But coincidental to that, running alongside it, is the fact that Violet has been left a French villa in, in, in someone's will. And so some of us go off to meet the people who, up until this point, had thought they owned the villa or, were, or that it was theirs in their, in their family forever 
to sort of investigate really um, why Monsieur the Marquis de Montmirail left the uh, villa to Violet. And uh, that sets a whole you know, bit of a cat amongst the pigeons to uh, discover why that was the case. Juicy. I thought so too. That's why I asked Laura Carmichael, who plays Lady Edith, to tell me anything else about these two fantastic and curious plot lines. So it's a bit of a mystery. We're not sure why this nice French fella she knew in her youth has left her this villa and has invited the family to come and, and see it. And so we go as a sort of we're sort of exploring what could possibly have happened and figuring out what we're going to do with this lovely villa that's sort of Edith and Robert and Cora and the Bransons whilst we're away back at the castle a film company have arrived because they're using the castle as a location and that for me really that's the kind of the new era you see this sort of modern glamorous world of the movies arrive in this stately home that we know of Downton, you know, so for all of our sort of stuffiness and our ways of doing things, the film company arrive. And I think as we know, as people who have been on sets, you kind of, everything goes out the window. People are sitting on the furniture, moving things like they own the place. And, uh, and yeah, it's really fun. You see that happen within Downton. Mr. Barber turns out to be a producer and director. He wanted to practice chronophotography here. <laughs> it's not the Stone Age, Papa. You mean he wants to make a film at Downton? What did you say? I let him down gently. Then I'll ring him back. I want to hear what he has to offer. There we have it. We are now perfectly set up to explore this new era of Downton. For romances, arguably, no one is more experienced in this area than Lady Mary. The eldest child of Cora and Robert Crawley, a feminist icon with the most turbulent love life, now married to Henry Talbot with two children, George and Caroline, we see her managing Downton with her father. Well, I asked the actor who plays her, the brilliant Michelle Dockery, about what's in store for Mary, and we reflected on a decade of suitors that have come and gone. I remember one year Alan Leach was like... I think it was like after the Sybil when she dies in the third series and um, I'm still not over that and he was like oh no I don't think anyone's ever got over that <laughs> or Matthew but um, I remember we were asked a question and somebody said you know so has um, has has Branson got you know is there a line of women you know ready to <laughs> pounce on you and he was like uh, not really, but Lady Mary seems to have, like, five. Like, he was like, what's this gut about? And, you know, he, he'd been grieving for longer. Like, it was so funny. I mean, those years when I look back, it's hilarious. I mean, it was literally, like, one suitor after another. Like, no, no. It was like Tinder of the time. And she really was just, was like, swipe, <laughs> swipe. Until eventually, you know, she met Henry and he swept her off her feet in a way. And then... And then there's what happened. Well, now, I don't think, I don't think Henry story is so... Now. No, it's never over. I just don't think it's, there's ever a dull moment in Mary's love she's life. She's got to have an affair. I'm just but putting she's, out there. <laughs> some point. I mean, series, maybe the next series. I don't know. Well, the thing is, is that he loves his cars and his, you know, racing car driving. And he is off wherever he is in Istanbul for this film. So he's not around. So, of course, you know, Mary is missing him and... Um, but not so much. Not so much. <laughs> and then, you know, this lovely, attractive director walks onto set. But, you know, I mean, I can't tell you anymore. You're going to have to watch, watch it. it. And I've got to ask you, Michelle, because um, 
everyone is desperate. I can hear them all through the speakers saying, ask the scene in the movie with Maggie Smith, that final scene where you have where she talks to you. Mm. I had some medical tests a few weeks ago and I went up to London to hear the results. Yes. And uh, I may not have long to live. It won't be too quick. But of course you can never get a London doctor to be precise. Oh, Granny. No, no, no. I just save your tears for something sad. There's, there's nothing sad here. I have lived a privileged and an interesting life and now it's, it's time to go. I'm leaving the family and the place that I treasure in talented hands. Well, I know Papa will be... Oh, no, no. No, I don't mean your father. I know I... I love him dearly. No, I... I mean you. You are the future of Downton. But I have such doubts, Granny. Are we right to keep it all going? When the world it was built for is fading with every day that passes, will George and Caroline still be living that life? Are we living it now? No, our ancestors lived different lives from us, and our descendants will live differently again, but Downton Abbey will be part of them. Will it be the same without you? Of course it will. You'll take over from where I left off. You'll be the frightening old lady keeping everyone up to the mark. <laughs> Thank you very much. You will, my darling, and you'll do it wonderfully. You're the best of me that will live on. It was so powerful. First of all, just acting with Maggie Smith, also to get yeah, to be... the best. To ha yeah, I mean, I can only imagine the script that you get to interact with her with. I mean, what a, what a joy. But that was so moving. How was that, filming that? It was moving. Like, it was really emotional. I remember feeling like I was doing everything I could to stop crying because, you know, and it's what she says. She says to Mary, you know, don't cry, don't, no tears. And so me as Mary, but Michelle also going, I'm, I'm about to burst into tears. Because, you know, there's, a, like I was saying, there's a sort of, there's always a layer underneath of like, I've, you know, been working with Maggie for 12 years now. And there was this sort of thing of like passing the baton on, you know, from grandmother to granddaughter that sort of for me felt so, I was just, just so emotional, you know, because I'd met her when I was in my 20s and, you know, here we are 12 years on. Like it's huge. Everything's got so many layers. And that thought of possibly saying goodbye to her and it, it was huge. I mean, with, with Maggie, you always feel like you up your game with her. She's so good and so sharp. And often she'll, she'll find something in a scene that you never realised was there. Like she'll find something beyond what's written and go, but maybe it's about this. And, and it, suddenly there's like this nugget that she discovers in the scene, you know, and makes it even better. And she's just so funny. You know, we have such a good time. She's really, she's as witty as her character. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's just wonderful to watch on so many levels, but we felt the magnitude of that scene, even as, well, I did, like on both levels, as watching you as the characters, but as actresses. Yeah. Play for you as well to have that experience. I mean, yeah, passing on the baton. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, incredible. But 
We know she's back, right? Because she's oh, yeah. in the trailer. She's so back. few. Few. She's back. <laughs> yeah. In a big way. <laughs> and still doing her kind of puppeteering and making Absolutely. sure everyone's all right. Oh, yeah. Let's look back at some of her best bits. Oh, really? It's like living in a second-rate hotel where the guests keep arriving and no-one seems to leave. Hello, Mama. Can I tempt you to one of these new cocktails? No, I don't think so. They look too exciting for so early in the evening, don't you think so, Klaus? Better avoided, my lady. I'm so looking forward to seeing your mother again. When I'm with her, I'm reminded of the virtues of the English. But isn't she American? Exactly. I asked Julian Fellows about the Dowager Countess. How much fun is it writing for Dame Maggie Smith, for, the, for, for Violet's character? Well, she's very rewarding to write for because she always understands why a line is funny. She, you never have to explain it to her. And she will always pick it up. I mean, we started our working relationship in a film I wrote called Gosford Park. Very good film. And in the very first scene we shot, we had to shoot for various logistical reasons in Maggie's bedroom in that for the first week while they got the rest of the house ready. So they redid the bedroom, they decorated, we shot there for a week. And on the first day, she had a line about marmalade. And the character takes the lid off the jar and says, bought marmalade, I call that very feeble. And... Um, she came and said, what is the point of that? And I said, oh, well, that really comes from a great aunt of mine who used to think if she was staying in a country house, if they had to buy in jams or jellies, either the cook or the still roommate didn't know their job. Yeah. And she, I've got it. From that day to this, I don't think she's ever asked me a question about another line because we got each other's rhythm. Mm. Uh, and uh, and I, you know, I'm very grateful that I had this long partnership with her. And she has been tremendously rewarding. So, six series in, one film later, what's it like returning to shoot a new movie? Alan Leach has played Tom Brunson since series one and has undergone one of the most remarkable character journeys in the show, from starting in a service role downstairs to falling in love with the youngest Crawley daughter, Sybil, and then eloping. Shocking. However, tragedy struck when Sybil lost her life during childbirth, which I'm still not over, but the family allowed Tom to stay and be one of them upstairs and over time to manage the estate. What a journey. Now the last film left us with a significant number of cliffhangers. One of these was seeing our young Branson have his attention captured by a mysterious Lucy Smith, who was revealed to be the illegitimate daughter of Baroness Bagshaw. What a wonderful experience for you in so many ways. The fact that you were then, you know, back with the gang yeah. to do the second film. Yeah, it was oh, lovely. Yeah. And I had my 40th birthday on set with my family and the day that I got married to Tuppence. Are you living your Big best day. life right now? It was cool. It really was cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really special. And then we all had a little cast dinner and uh, Hugh said some things. It was just lovely. Like, yeah. Tell us more. It's, it's a proper family. It really is a proper family. I mean, like, from the first season, I mean, to enjoy the success that this show has had and to experience with people who are so talented but also so down to earth is a real blessing and something that you don't catch all the time. You don't get all of these elements coming together. 
uh, very often. And as Julian says, it's like lightning in a bottle, you know. <laughs> and people say, like, what is it that, that is so special about it? And you go, it's all these elements and it's just, it just is fate. I don't know how else to describe it. Movie number two, the script comes through and you read it. What was your reaction? Oh, it was, it's always a, a, like, a, it is like a little present when you get it. And the first thing I always do is ring Hugh and Michelle. Because we always get it around the same time. So I was like, Dockers? She's like, yeah, you read it? Yeah, you? And then we just go through it. But well, it's always, because I want, I'm a fan of the show myself. I want to know what happens to Mosley. I want to know what happens to Mrs. Patmore and Daisy. And I want to know the story as much as anyone else. So I kind of always feel like I'm cheating the fact that I get to read it first. And then it was kind of bizarre, though. This time we had to do the Zoom, a Zoom read through, which normally would all be together. So that was a bit, bit funny. Especially because a lot of the cast didn't realise that they weren't muted. <laughs> so they made some comments. There could be a movie about that Zoom. It was quite funny. And forgetting that, that the producers, Julian, director, everyone can hear you. And then, of course, the reaction, because you can see them. And they realise the expletives and them covering the mouths. Too late now. We heard it. <laughs> That's so brilliant to hear because so many of us at the beginning of lockdown were making so many faux pas on oh, Zoom yeah. and we saw all this stuff on the news with people's kids running into the back yeah, or yeah, cat emojis yeah, yeah. kind yeah. of appearing. So yes, save yeah. that. Maybe that could be your script. I think it should be my script, yeah. I'm so glad you're back. Your character is a core, key player in, in Downton and we see at the end of the last movie this new romance yeah. with Lucy. Yeah. And in the new film, what can we reveal that people might already well, know from the seeing the trailer? Yeah. You definitely know they get married. We've yeah. said there's a wedding. I know. And that was a really nice way to, because it opens the movie. And it's, I felt that that was kind of a completion of, of Tom's journey to find happiness as well. You know, it's very important that for so long he was kind of very sad and lost. And it did feel that by the end of the last movie, and whether we never knew that if there was going to be another one, that I felt that that was a great finishing of his journey, even if it was just that, the two of them dancing. And I thought that was quite symbolic that they weren't in the great hall dancing. It was just them on their own outside. And they're both victims of circumstance, the two characters, which is really lovely. You know, Lucy's again born into it, but was hidden for so long. And then Tom obviously married into it. And then, you know, his story is his story. But I love the fact that they're both victims of circumstance, happy circumstances as well. But they're both trying to figure this out. So it's kind of weird. It is. It's the fairy tale in it many is, yeah, ways. But yeah. I love I love that idea. Yes, you're right. They dance on their own, separate mm. to everybody else, because they are on the periphery and they yeah. they do come with a different perspective. I love that. And, and they're not they're not entitled. They're not entitled, yeah. And and that's quite nice to that seeing that relationship develop in the new movie is really nice as well, because you kind of see them still discovering each other in the south of France. Yeah, because if you don't already think Tom Branson's character is one of the jammiest characters in the history of, you know, yes. TV's <laughs> writing, it gets even jammier for him, it doesn't does it? a little <laughs> bit, yeah. I mean, but even as an actor, when I read, read that script and again ringing Hugh, I was like, we're off to the south of France, darling. <laughs> Which, I mean, quarantining with the whole cast and crew for two weeks was, again, is another movie. Bringing the story to life on screen is first-time Downton director Simon Curtis, but he's by no means a stranger to the franchise. I started by asking him about his experience. Uh, Simon Curtis, director. What's it like stepping into a... It's not even a franchise, is it? It's a phenomenon. And being handed the script by Julian Fellows, do you say yes instantly? 
Well, I've had a curious relationship with the, the whole show because I'm very close to a lot of the cast and I'd worked with Julian, I'd worked with Gareth and Liz, the two producers on two other films I made. And of course, I married to one of the cast. So, Elizabeth um, McGovern, yes, so, who plays Cora. Uh, I'd avidly watched it and, and it's sort of been a plus one, a lot of the events along the time. So it certainly didn't come out of the blue. But the offer came during the height of lockdown and it just felt, you know, like a really reassuring prospect in the future. And then critically, I read the script and thought Julian had done a brilliant job and that was the decider. Alongside the director and writer, there are a number of other critical components in the Downton machine. Two of these are the producers, Gareth Neem and Liz Truebridge, who've worked on the show since the very beginning. Liz, how yep. exciting to be talking to one of the most powerful women in Downton. <laughs> There's a lot of powerful women yes, in Downton. Yes, there are a lot of powerful women in Downton, yeah. on screen and yeah, behind the are, camera. So let's talk about the film, mm-hmm. the new movie, yeah, new, new era. Movie. Yeah. When did you first hear about the idea? Well, it was, it was really timely. We talked about it in 2019 and then suddenly lockdown happened. And so it was a great time to develop it. And when I first heard what Julian was going to do, I just thought, gosh, that would be really fun. And is it all Julian's idea? Does he come to you and say, or is it more collaborative? No, it's very collaborative. And I definitely Gareth Neem had a huge part in the movie. It's based on a story by Gareth's well, it's not based on a story by Gareth's grandfather, but it was an experience that Gareth's grandfather, he comes from a dynasty of filmmakers. And you shot this entire movie in the pandemic? We did. We started in December of 2020 mm-hmm. and then did all the pre-production during quite serious lockdown. So as uh, the producer on the show, how were your stress levels? Quite high, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but we had an amazing COVID team. And Focus were, Focus, our distributors, were really supportive and anything that we needed in order to keep going. I think the thing that was the hardest for us was we, we had to work around, we had to be in, creative and work around how, for example, when you go location wrecking for to find the places, you couldn't go into houses. And, you know, our show is very much about big houses. So the poor location manager and the designer were... You know, they, people were very cooperative, so there was lots of photographs being bandied around. But part of our film is set abroad. And we didn't know until really about three weeks before we went whether we could go. So we had to run two schedules. We had to do a combined budget and everything, to, you know, two lots of technical recceing, massive amount of work to have locations here and in Scotland that could be France if we needed to and would have to, we would have to do CGI and it, so big effects. So basically if you weren't able to film in the south of France then exactly. you had a backup? We had to have a backup. So yeah. they, they, I mean just what did this do for the cost of the production? Well it certainly expanded it quite <laughs> considerably but we knew that if we could get to France we would come in reasonably within the budget that we thought it should be. But if we were going to do the south of England, Mm. Scotland, the north, we we had Berwick upon Tweed, 
very nice place it is too. No, it is. It's a very nice place. <laughs> but not the south of France. But we knew that we would have to do a lot of visual effects mm. to, to make it look believable. Producer Gareth Neem, I feel like I'm on a trail of discovering the source of this wonderful story, the origin story, if you like, of the new movie, which is, it's your history, it's your family history. It is, actually, because the film story is um, very much inspired from the making of Alfred Hitchcock's Blackmail, which was the first talking picture ever made in Britain, and which my grandfather, late grandfather, obviously, worked on as a very young man. He was a very distinguished film director, producer, writer, screenwriter, cinematographer, and he started in the camera department on blackmail in 1928 as a young man. So the stories of how, you know, that film was uh, turned from a silent film to begin with halfway through be becoming a talking picture, you know, it was a story I knew all about from a young age. And then in addition to that, his mother, my great-grandmother, was a silent film star, and she was in a film by the French director Abel Gans, who's referenced in Downton as being one of the great directors of the time. And I think she was, I mean, she went to America to be in movies before Hollywood was really even created. She went to Jacksonville, Florida. So I've got both those connections, really, both the acting story and the filmmaking story. What a wonderful, wonderful... So what was your grandmother's name, great-grandmother's yeah, name? Yeah, her name was Ivy Close. Was she very beautiful? She must have been. She was very beautiful, and she won the first ever beauty contest in Britain. It was run by the uh, Daily Mirror in 1908. And people were invited to send photographs of their, mostly their daughters, you know, and because it was an age when people were just beginning to get cameras. I mean, mostly people went to studios to be photographed then, but amateur photography was starting. And her father apparently was quite a keen amateur photographer. And he sent her photographs into the Daily Mirror and they thought, oh yeah, she's very beautiful. So she was one of the girls that were selected to come down to London and to be photographed by their glamorous society photographer who was going to photograph all of these finalists. And his name was Elwyn Neem, and he had a studio in Bond Street. And he met her, she won the beauty contest, and they married. Incredible. Yeah. And then, so she became an actress having been a beauty queen. So th things don't change, you know, modeling and acting, very related walks of life. Now, whilst we are looking forward to the new film, it requires someone to be looking back in minute detail at the history so the Downton experience is as authentic and believable as possible. And this person is Alistair Bruce. He's the historical advisor for Downton Abbey, a critical part of the production team. He describes his work as feeding your unconscious by making every move and gesture in Downton feel legitimate. I asked him to give me some examples of what these instances that we might never have noticed look like. It goes right down to when you have action in the background of a shot, generally by supporting actors, and they may be carrying something. Well, I've always made sure, working with the time of day that the director is delivering, that they are either carrying clean sheets up to the bedrooms or dirty sheets down in accordance with the time of day, or that the food or that the implements that are required in the dining room are going in the right direction. We've already established where all the different storerooms are below stairs, so that if I'm required to get someone to cross the kitchen from the larder to the main hall, and it's at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'll make sure they're carrying precisely what's required to do that. We might have 
somebody needs to be doing something in this corner here that's interesting. So I might say, well, maybe with bread, they could be rubbing the edge of a collar of one of the gentlemen taking off a mark, which, of course, using the starch out of the bread to lift the mark out of the starched collars. It's all those sort of tiny things. And, you know, if you weave them all together, the fact that one of the principals is arguing with another is, of course, what people watch. But there's something delicious about them seeing in the background that all of this stuff is correct. So where did you get this expertise from? It's a combination of many things, really. It's talking to people who lived at that time. Now, most of them are dead now, but I was obsessed with interest when I was a young teenager. Also, it's looking at the account books of the great estates and the great houses. And in the wardrobe accounts of the royal household, which is where... Basically, everything was bought and sold for kings going right back to, really, the the Plantagenets. You can see what was important to them. Yes, there were 64 geese being eaten each day or something like that. But also, what did they have with it? And and you start to realise, well, all this stuff's got to be stored. And then when you go and visit these old houses, and I base all my knowledge on four specific ones, which I keep to myself, you can see precisely how each of them had laid out their downstairs area. And I think that we've then had some fun establishing that for Downton and then we stick to it and it works. I mean, maybe nobody even notices, but my feeling is that because we are being absolutely adroit by detail, thereby, if somebody wanted to burrow down, they could find it. It adds to the integrity of everything else people see. And it's now a global phenomenon. I asked Dame Penelope Wilton why she thought it was such a huge success. It's the million dollar question. Why is it so successful? Well, I think it's a mixture of a lot of things. I think it's a very good story. The narrative is extremely compelling. Every part of society will be able to enjoy some characters and follow their stories. Also, Julian gives a storyline. There's 18 main characters in Downton, and he gives a storyline to pretty well every character, which is a sort of juggling act that is unbelievably clever. So you can follow their different storylines, and there's always an interest. And nowadays, people can do very short scenes. The turnover of the scenes and the storylines goes very quickly. Mm. So it's quite compulsive viewing because you want to follow what's going to happen to all these people. Of course, so much can happen in an hour. Exactly, in an hour. And that's very clever of Julian. I don't know anyone else who quite does it with so many people. I know, and still have such well-rounded characters, particularly yes, women. and he writes for those characters. There's no generic writing. He writes for the particular character. So every character has its own voice. You must live in his head all the time. Yes. <laughs> all of you. <laughs> and the global appeal? Who better to ask than Elizabeth McGovern, Cora Crawley, whose life somewhat parallels her character as an American who came to live in the UK. Why does America particularly love it so much? I think the escape and the comfort. There's something that feels very solid. Life moves so fast now. I mean, I think we're all just reeling from so many ambushes. (laughs) You know, technology, now, of course, the pandemic, um, 
global warming. Where do we even start? (laughs) And there's just something about going back in time to a time that was simpler when the rules were clear and everybody knew their place and everybody seems content with it. That is just comforting. It sounds like just the tonic we need right now. Yeah. Well, let's, we'll see. So once you have an established, globally adored television series that's been running for over 10 years, how do you make the transition to the big screen? Here's director Simon Curtis. I've always said that one of the chief reasons that the show launched so massively way back when in the first episode was that Brian Percival directed the first episode so well. And right from the get-go, there was a sort of cinematic feel that was a cut above a lot of the work on television at that time. And so that did set a standard. But we felt we had to go further with this, you know, as a, a big feature film. And I thought, well, there's the opportunity. Obviously, we go into black and white when we're doing film within a film scenes. We're taking the characters abroad for the first time to France. There were ways to make it visually different as well. And just before we finish, Julian Fellows. The difference between writing for the big screen, writing a a feature rather than a series? Well, of course, a feature, like everything, is made by many people. And one of the main differences between a feature film and a television series is that it looks like a feature film. And for that, you need the right cinematographer and he or she has to have the right team around them and so on and so forth. But in terms of writing, and particularly with this show, I had had a format with the series where some people had more than a couple of big stories in the series, but everyone had at least two decent stories. And in the other episodes, they would be part of someone else's story. But in a film, you've got just under two hours And all your 20 characters or whatever have got to have enough to do. So they've got a beginning, middle and end and a resolution within the film. You can't say, wait for the next film. And that is the sort of writing challenge, if you like. That's what you have to do. How much extra gets written that then is cut down because you're masterful at making so much happen in such a short space of time. Everyone seems to have a twist and a turn and a storyline, like every character. Like, how did he do that in this many pages? Well, to- that, that, you know, that's, that's what the audience have come to expect and that's what I have to give them. As to quite how I do it, I probably couldn't answer in any meaningful way. But it does seem to be there at the end, which is the main thing. And, of course, you need the right cast. I mean, I always say at the read-through, every cast member has to become responsible for their own storyline because in some of these scenes, maybe five or six storylines are being advanced a beat. And it's a lot to ask of the director and the cinematographer, you know, to keep a beady eye on absolutely make sure this one's delivered and that's delivered. The only way you can be sure of that is if the actors are prepared to tell their own story. Yeah. Also, they will give you responses without a line that tell their own story and you can use them or not as you wish. So uh, that is a very important part of it. 
Join me next time for episode seven, Downton in Context, where we'll be exploring the magnificent setting of Downton itself. It was cash for honours. He would get a nice title and cash a big house. Cash for honours, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, get a title and a big house, and in return for a nice little pot of cash that will help the estate survive. This is a Something Else production. Make sure you follow Downton Abbey, the official podcast, so you never miss an episode. And do not miss the film Downton Abbey, A New Era, only in cinemas this spring.